you know, what I want to know is, is how, how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to Hammered. During all of my antique furniture shows and refinishing furniture and creating these cool pieces that I'd been doing along the way. I had sold some fixtures and shelves and uh, farm tables to these guys in Atlanta and Midtown that were going to open a shop. And I I really like these guys and uh, Kelly and David were their names. And they got in touch with me and said, hey, you know, we opened this new place if you want to come check it out. And I went and found the place and it was off Cheshire Bridge Road, which kind of scared me because that's where all the old stomping grounds and gay bars and places like that were. And I thought, where would this place be? And I went behind this restaurant called the Sundown Cafe and I drove up and it was like this huge greenhouse, like in Midtown. And there was this uh, this kind of like entrance that was really cool and pretty and kind of Japanese looking. And I opened the door and when I walked in, it was as if I was walking into my own imagination I couldn't believe it. It was like they had created my dream of this shop that I had been thinking about for 12 years or so. Every day when I was out there doing these monotonous landscaping maintenance jobs or installations or whatever, I was dreaming and daydreaming of how I was going to create this space and this shop. And I walked right into it. They had waterfalls and ponds and koi fish and European statues and benches and bird baths and just everything that I had seen in my mind's eye. Part of me was so excited and mesmerized, but there was another part of me that was just devastated because I felt like somebody beat me to it. Somebody beat me to the, you know, they've done it. They did it. They stuck their neck out and they did it. And I've been thinking of this and dreaming about this and kind of manifesting this in my mind for so long. 
And so I left there that day just feeling a little bit more defeated. I was happy for them. I was. I was very happy that they, and I was excited for this new venture. But I was also very sad because I felt like I didn't have enough courage to really take a positive risk. I could take all kinds of negative risk, but taking a positive risk for some reason scared me. When I returned to Therapy Lady, it was time to get down, and I was really scared. I went into my individual session, and she just laid it down, and I I kept saying, you know, I don't know why I have this this attraction or why I pull people in. And she sat and she looked at me and she got real close to me. And she said, Jill, have you ever heard of the word charisma? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, you have charisma. And it's presence, power, and warmth. Those three things you possess And when you meet people, even though you think you're an introvert, you can still have a lot of charisma. And she said, and it's a good thing. But learning how to channel your energy in a way that's not self-defeating. She said, charisma is not something that anybody has. But this came about because of all the the past circumstances. And you have learned a very clever way to navigate through this world. And it's time to go to work. If you're serious about this, then you have to make the commitment. And so I sat and I told her, I said, I feel like I just that I'm just lying all the time because I say, yes, 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 I want to work, I want to change, I want to, uh, but I don't know how to do it. And she talked about self-punishment and how she said, you beat yourself up for beating yourself up. She goes, you like to feel bad to feel bad. And I just couldn't get it. Like, I don't feel like I'm doing that, but I was. And she said, all your accidents, your back injury, all these things she says, form a self-punishment. You are continuing where your parents left off. When we leave home, we just pick up where they leave off because we don't know any differently. And then you attract people that will abuse you or hurt you or abandon you or use you. She said, are you ready to give it up? And I really was. I really wanted to give it up. And she told me how if I learned how to channel my charisma, that I could use that and I could succeed as a as a business person, as a human, in relationships or whatever. So that hour was pretty intense. And then we had to go into the, the group. And a lot of times it's hard because you, you mean, you know, I, I just leave there and I, I you know, get some water and kind of go into phase two here. Here we go into three more hours of this. God, 
I mean, do other people do this? Do regular people go through this? Do regular people, like, look at their life under a microscope? No, most of the time, you know, when they're 24, they're already getting married, and they have their kids, and then they go through their life because they're managing their kids, and they're doing kids, and they're doing their husband, and they're doing their lives because that's what they, you know, they buy their houses, and they, they go, 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 and they don't have to look. They don't want to look. They don't need to look. They're happy. They're fine. Until the day maybe their kids leave and then they look at their husband over there and they don't even like him or he doesn't like her. I mean, it's, let's get honest. If you really get honest about this stuff, who wants to do it? Nobody wants to do it. Well, I didn't have a choice. Because my other choice is to drink or just fucking kill myself. But I don't want to live like this. I don't want to continue living in this halfway life of recovery versus darkness. And I'd read, you know, owning your own shadow, and all these, you know, the dance of anger, all these things that I'd kept going in this loop and in this circle. Well, the group got together and everybody comes in and here we go. And I just raised my hand and I said, I want to work. And therapy lady's face was like, okay. And everybody was kind of quiet and weird. And I was like, oh, Lord, what is, I don't even know what this means. And she said, you know what, Jill, let's do a limit structure. And I said, what's that? And she went over to this closet and she pulled out this blue, looked like a tumbling mat, like there would be like in uh, in school. And she laid this mat, cleared the floor. They laid this mat down in the floor. And she said, I want you to lay down on this mat. And everybody gather around. Everybody got on their knees all around me. And she was at my head. She was at the over over my head and I was looking up at her and she said this is called a limit structure and what's going to happen is when I tell you to I'm going to have you close your eyes and then everybody is going to put their hands on you and they're going to hold you down and then when I tell you to I want you to push to push upward and she said, just go with it. And we're just going to see what happens with this. And if you get too uncomfortable, you know, we can stop. But I think this might be a good way to start. And I was willing because I was ready. I was pissed. I was pissed at myself. I was pissed at these sexual encounters, you know. And I kept asking her, am I a sex addict? Jesus. She's not a fucking sex addict. You know, you're just, you're wounded and you're just, you keep, it's like a line of cocaine. When these people present themselves to you, it's a line of cocaine and you want it. And you have no restraint. You have no willpower. Well, you know, in AA, they teach you there's no such thing as willpower. If you're an addict, you're an addict. But having restraint to not use and to not drink, it comes from somewhere. Why couldn't I apply it to these, these one-night stand relationships or, you know, and I, I just didn't know how to apply it because I kept seeking this, this attention and this love. 
And so I laid there and she kind of took her finger and she tapped my forehead where my mind's eye, like right there, you know, above your nose bridge. And she sort of put her fingers there and kind of held there for a second. And I took some deep breaths. Everybody, she had everybody do these deep breaths. And so we did the deep breaths. And then she counted to three. And then she said, okay. And when she said go, all these women, there was about 12, 8 to 12. I can't recall how many exactly. But they were all holding me. They were holding my arms down, my hands, my wrist, my knees, my ankles, my feet. They were holding me down. And I closed my eyes and I immediately heard a door slam. And I was back at my home when I was three, when my father had brought me home from the barber shop to beat my ass. This entire scenario went down in my mind. And then I could hear therapy ladies say, I want you to push upward. And as this beating from my father started happening in this dreamlike state, it was like I was observing it. I could see myself as a three-year-old and him with his belt just tearing into me. And I remember the feelings. It was just like I was there. I could hear it. I could feel it. There was the rage coming from him. I could feel that belt hitting my little legs. And I started to push. And my body, the sounds that came out of me were sounds that I didn't even know that I had inside of me. And I began to push these women up and the strength and the rage that started coming up out of me. Well, therapy lady, what was strange about it is that I was in two places at one time. And she was saying, I've got you. I'm right here. We're right here. We're right here. Push. And I would, oh, and they were, I mean, some of these, I was lifting some of them off the ground. There was so much strength in me. And finally, the ending was me on this braided rug, counting the braids in the rug. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And my chin was quivering. Well, when she brought me out of this, my chin was quivering as it did when I was three, and I could not stop it. You know, like when your teeth chatter, but it was like, and I could not stop my chin. And I was like starting to get embarrassed and self-conscious. And I'm like, fuck it. And I laid there and they all just sat there. Nobody said a word. And finally, we got up and I got in my chair and we all sat there and we talked about it. I told the entire scenario. When I went home that night, when I got in my truck, 
my legs and my arms and my entire body felt like a noodle, like spaghetti. Like I could not, even my jaw, everything in my body was completely exhausted. I, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, she told me, we hold these stories and we hold this pain in our cells. We hold this rage and this anger in our cells. And if you will allow this process to work, you can get this out of yourself. And we started doing these processes where we would put pumpkins and use a machete or she had suggested getting a pumpkin and use a machete and enroll that as somebody, whether it be your father or your mother or some rapist or whoever, take a baseball bat and get a metal trash can and beat the fuck out of it. Get this out of your body. Well, see, I thought I'd been doing that all these years in this physical labor. This physical labor was the outlet that I had been used. I had gotten to the point where that wasn't working enough. Yes, it was helping me to maintain some sort of semblance to, you know, peace, but it wasn't working anymore. And so to be willing to go these next steps, it was scary. Well, I went into a very dark depression. I remember laying in that log house by myself on total weekends, laying in that bed and looking up at that barn and looking up at that big oak tree that I'd seen my grandmother step out from when I first bought that house. And I'd been there four years now. And that house was starting to represent not a real good thing. It was exhausting. Everything I did was exhausting. Everything I did was a punishment. I had no joy in my life. I felt like I was at a more of a rock bottom than I think I'd ever been at. How in the hell am I going to deal with this? Well, Elizabeth, the girl from group, We'd continued to see each other. And Elizabeth was an old soul. She was 10 years younger than me, but she was full of life and vitality. Sometimes I think people get a bad rap that have really fast brains. She was highly intelligent. She worked in the corporate world and she could probably do like three hours of work compared to somebody that spent 10 hours a day because she was super smart and super fast and her brain processed things very quickly. And so she and I continued to to see each other and I I told therapy lady, you know, I really feel like I want to commit to her in a relationship. Therapy lady wasn't that excited about it, but she didn't judge. She was like, everybody's our teacher. Everybody's our greatest gift to grow. And also Gail had always told me that. 
you know, when the student's ready, the teacher appears, and you're never going to know what form they're coming in. Well, Elizabeth was a lot of fun. She had a funny sense of humor, and she was just hilarious, and I just laughed. And, you know, I always depended on laughter to get me through because life is just too hard to go through it without some laughter. But this depression and this funk around this house, you know, was starting to really get me down. And so Elizabeth invited me to go down to New Orleans to meet her mother. And her mother was living in this this condo that had been a building that had been an orphanage that Anne Rice had bought. And it was pretty creepy. And This was my first trip to New Orleans, and I really picked up on some darkness in New Orleans. I don't know if I'm an intuitive or a clairvoyant. I don't really have a terminology for what I, and I could just be a sensitive person. I'm not sure. But I know that there was a lot of intrigue around New Orleans, sort of like Savannah, and I don't know if these places are haunted, but... I was very attracted to it, but her mother was a a business person, very smart, pretty serious, pretty intense. And I told her about my house and, you know, just got, we got to know each other. Then her mother wasn't judgmental about Elizabeth's new relationship with a female, you know, and that it was, it kind of blew my mind that a parent could be nice, you know, and a parent could be accepting because most of the time, I never had parents that liked me or there was always that sense of, oh, my God, you know, they don't want their daughter to be gay or whatever. But her mom didn't have a lot of judgment around there. I think her mother really wanted her to be happy. But she sort of planted a few seeds in my mind, like, you know, you can always sell your house. Like, have you even thought about it? And I hadn't thought about it. I thought, I can't sell that house. Not after everything I've done and all this work and all this time. And, you know, but I would be out there mowing my damn grass at 1130 at night. I had the headlights on the mower and there'd be like possums and deer and animals running darting in front of me. Because it was just so hard to maintain all of it. The, the front of the house was almost like a pasture, and so there was a lot to mow, and then the back was wooded, but it was just a, an ongoing process, especially in the summer. So she'd planted some seeds about possibly selling, and, you know, I kind of thought about it. And So one day Elizabeth says to me, why don't you just sell your fucking house and just move in with me? Just move in with me and quit working. You don't even have to work. I'll take care of you. Nobody had ever said that to me. Nobody had ever said, I'll take care of you. And it it was like, you, I, it, there was part of me that was like, really? Like, oh my God, that would be so cool. But then the other part of me is like, that's ridiculous. You can't take care of me. Nobody can take care of me. I've got to be independent. I've got to, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, she kept working on me. And she's like, I'm serious. 
You don't have to do all that. You're putting yourself through hell. Won't you just sell it? Well, I called a realtor and she came out and she was the realtor that helped me find it. And so we put it on the market and, you know, I had a few lookers, but in the meantime, I was staying at Elizabeth's house a lot and Burr Haney liked her poodle, you know, and things were kind of going good. And I, and this house started to really become a ball and chain around my neck. Well, I kept the house on the market for nine months and nothing would happen. And then I got another realtor and that was one that Elizabeth referred. And so I kept trying and this realtor's like, well, you need to put some carpet in. I'll stage it for you. I'll do all these things, right? Well, one weekend, Elizabeth's family had a house up in Black Mountain, North Carolina, and so she says, let's go up to the mountain house for the weekend. And I remember driving up there and I was driving her car and she had a sunroof and the sun was coming through. And I'll never forget this day. We were driving up on, on Interstate 26 and you could see mountains and the sun was sort of beaming through the car onto her face and onto her being, sort of, and it was like she was sort of illuminated, and I really felt like I loved this person. I loved her, and I felt like I was starting to really fall in love, and I thought, ooh, am I really going to, am I really, you know, I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust my feelings, but I, I did. I loved her as a human being, and we went to this mountain house and we had such a good time. The dogs were running around. We were laughing and we went into the town of Black Mountain and I was walking around and it was like, wow, you know, this is a really cool place. And I really was intrigued by it, you know, and there was something about it that just really struck a chord in me that felt like home. It was like people, it was like they were on Valium, but they weren't. And it was this pace and it was this gentleness. And so, you know, of course, we go back to Atlanta and back to the rat race. And here we go again. And and uh, I kept trying to sell this house and nothing was happening. Well, my neighbors from Paris, the feng shui master, Guy, he had approached me and said, you know, are you having any luck with your house? And I said, no. And he kept bugging me, go, what? I can help you sell your house. And I'm like, how? He goes, oh, I do feng shui. I can feng shui your house. And I was like, whatever. And he kept telling me over and over like that he could feng shui my house and help me sell it. And so... I just, you know, finally, I said, go ahead, do whatever. And I had hidden the key. He knew where the key was. And he said, I'll just do some things. And uh, you may notice them and you may not. Well, I came home from work one, one evening and it was still light. I, I guess I knocked off early that day, but it was a kind of dusk. And I came on the front porch and I noticed this little tiny wind chime on my front porch. I thought, oh, that must be part of the feng shui. And then I went in and I was, you know, and I noticed just a 
few things. There were like a there was a mirror and there was some shift of plants. It was almost like a few things got moved around, but I didn't really take a a big notice to all of it. Um, and I just continued on. Well, a couple of days later, I get a knock on my door and this guy's standing there and he's kind of this handsome, good looking guy and he looked familiar. And I think he had been to my antique show because I'd had an antique show out at my house and he's standing there and I said, Hey, and he goes, Hey, how's it going? I said, okay. He guy said, can I help you? And he goes, yeah, uh, I want to buy your house. Now, by then, I had taken all the real estate signs down because I was kind of like, I don't think it's going to sell. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm downsizing. He said, I just sold a horse farm and I, I want a smaller place. And I'm thinking, smaller? Jesus. He said, I'll pay you cash. All of a sudden, I thought, oh, my God, the feng shui master just fucking created this. And we ended up talking and I called this this real estate lady to help me to understand because I didn't know all the legal terminology and I wanted to make sure I didn't lose out and blah, blah, blah. And we struck up a deal. And the day of the closing, this man was sitting across the table in the law office. He goes, by the way, he said, I was over there the other day. Nobody was there. He said, and I, I heard like chickens. Are there chickens around there? Well, what was strange about this property is that this house had been built over a, a property that had once been a chicken farm. And I, I kind of laughed and I looked at the lady that was with me and that was representing me. And we sort of laughed because I had told her some of these crazy haunted tales of this house. And he looked at me across the table and he says, is that house haunted? And he was serious as a heart attack. And I go, no. <laughs> I thought, oh, God, we're down to the wire here. I ain't telling you anything. We went on through with the with the deal and I sold the house and I made a lot of money on it and I was very excited and I moved in. But before I moved, I remember packing up the last things. It was the last night. It was evening and it was cold. I guess winter had come and I had the last box in the truck. And I was by myself. My dog was already over to Elizabeth's house, and she lived across town, about an hour or so, more than an hour away from this house. Well, I'd turned all the lights off in this house, and I went out to the truck, and I remember I put my foot up on the bumper on the back near the tailgate for some reason. And I saw leaves like swirling, you know, when the wind comes along, picks leaves up like a little tornado and these leaves were kind of twirling and, and there was this sense of energy 
that was starting to leave, and I could hear my grandmother speaking to me, and she said, it's time, it's time, Jill. And I started weeping, and I started, oh my God, my chest felt like I was going to die. My chest felt like it was just going to explode with grief. And I started just losing it. And I said, I got to let you go. It's time for you to go. Nanny, it's time. You got to leave me now. You've got to leave me now. And I just screamed it. And I just totally, I said, I love you. And I trust you and I will always need you desperately in my life. But you have to go. And all of a sudden it got very, very quiet. And I got scared. And it was so silent. And it was like there was nothing left. That property, that house was dark. And it was time for me to go. And it was done. And I pulled out of that long gravel driveway. And I was done. And I was moving on to this next journey. I felt like I had some hope. I felt like I had someone that was supporting me. And I truly believed that Elizabeth loved me and I truly believed that there was going to be some joy in my life. I had hope for the first time in a long, long time and I made a commitment that I was going to work on being more compassionate to myself. I could be compassionate to others, but I did not know how to be compassionate to myself. And part of letting go of this house and this whole idea was to stop beating myself to death with this work. And it was time to let it go. And so I drove away from Alpharetta, Georgia, and I didn't go back for a long, long time. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammered.com, and follow us on social media for updates. 